Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, gang. Thanks for coming back to Kubrick's Universe. In this show, we're going to bring you part two of our special, done in collaboration with the Museum of the City of New York. From photography to film noir, Stanley Kubrick's early career was a special event held at MCNY on May 22nd, 2018. Inspired by their exhibition, Through a Different Lens, Stanley Kubrick Photographs, in a screening and talkback session, the museum examines two of the first films Kubrick ever made, Day of the Fight from 1951 and Killer's Kiss from 55. But first, we're going to hear from Ms. Fran Rosenfeld, who introduced this one-of-a-kind event. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Museum of the City of New York. My name is Fran Rosenfeld. I'm the Director of Public Programs here at the museum. Thank you so much for joining us for the first program in our series inspired by the museum's new exhibition, Through a Different Lens, Stanley Kubrick Photographs. Uh, the exhibition takes a look at the early part of Kubrick's career when he was a photographer at Look Magazine, capturing New York City in the late 40s and early 50s. And this exhibition includes more than 120 photographs by Kubrick from the museum's Look Magazine archive. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to see this exhibition, which was co-curated by two of our curators, Donald Albrecht and Sean Corcoran, um, we invite you to come back uh, to explore the exhibition it, we are open every day, 10 to 6, and the exhibition is on view through October. Tonight's event, From Photography to Film Noir, Stanley Kubrick's Early Career, uh, for tonight's event, we are really excited to screen two of Kubrick's earliest works, Day of the Fight, a 1951 film which follows boxer Walter Cartier as he prepares for a fight, and Killer's Kiss, a 1955 film noir set in New York City. And we're very honored to have New York Magazine film critic Emily Yoshida here tonight to discuss the films after we screen them with uh, the two curators of our exhibition, Donald Albrecht and Sean Corcoran. Um, and they, after the screening, are going to sit down to consider the connections between these two formative films and Kubrick's early start in photography, as well as uh, the imaginative eye and the visual flair that would come to define his later film work. Uh, at this time, I'd like to ask you, please silence anything that makes noise. And I will, um, we will roll film in just one second. Enjoy the show. Uh just thought we would start with mentioning, for those of you who have not seen the exhibition, for those of you who have seen the exhibition, you probably can see the connections uh, between the phot photographs and the films. Uh, some of you may know that in the late 1940s, when Kubrick was working at uh, Look Magazine, he did a photo shoot on Walter Cartier. It's called Prize Fighter, and it comes out in 1949. 
And many of the photographs themselves have the kind of dark, shadowed look. And the brutality of the film that is then his first documentary, which is released in 1951. He leaves Look in 50, and he uh, makes the film, and it comes out in 1951. Killer's Kiss is then his second feature film. Uh, The first is Fear and Desire, Desire, which is largely unwatchable, but... (laughs) You That's mean okay. Unwatchable because it's inaccessible, but it's highly inaccessible. <laughs> well, you can see it on Netflix. Really? Yeah, you can see or it. No, no, Amazon Prime. I'm sorry, Amazon Prime. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. And uh, so one of the things we do in the exhibition is we point out four themes that are kind of clues that thread their way through the photographs, but that also lay uh, clues and breadcrumbs in a sense of the film work. One is looking which is how, through the camera lens of the, the photography camera lens, he sharpens his eye and learns about human interaction, and also how he becomes in many ways a voyeur, and you especially see this in Killer's Kiss with the window scenes. Another is media savvy, which is uh, the idea that he goes behind the scenes at Look Magazine to films, to Broadway shows, and he learns how the media is made, the other theme we bring out in the exhibition, uh, we call um, what's the other one? Well, there's, there's, uh, Why don't you? Yeah. Well, one is uh, framing. Oh, sure. One is visual style. Yeah, visual style, and that includes you know framing, composition, and lighting. And then the last was what we call working the system, which is about. Um, you know, as he's 17 years old when he starts working for Look, and it's about a young man um, kind of understanding how to work within a larger organization uh, at Look. He would have had uh, fellow photographers to work with, editors, writers, uh, the whole the whole process of getting um, from genesis of story to print. Um, so part of it is learning to work within the magazine system, but then he also photographed systems uh, like Columbia University, or uh, he was, again, if you saw the exhibition, he went down to Sarasota, Florida to see how Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus um, worked. And one of the great glories of the collection here, overall it's about 15,000 images by Kubrick, uh, uh, within an overall archive of about 300,000 Look magazine uh, shoots that we have. Uh, you can also see that we have the outtakes, the things that attracted his attention while on assignment, which a family-oriented magazine like Look would never publish. And you can very much see that in Killer's Kiss with the, the interest in the bizarre the famous mannequin sequence, yeah. Yeah. you know, the surreal. You you don't look almost. We've in doing the show, we found it fascinating. You could tell immediately when you got to an image, you'd say, "Oh, they never would publish that." <laughs> so the sort of quasi Diane Arbus images, uh, the man, the tattooed freak yeah. with the giant nipple rings, <laughs> he proposes that, but they would never publish that. Exactly. So we approach this basically as the photography going into the films. You're coming at it, Emily, from the films to the photography. What do you see in... You've seen the show and you've not seen the films. Yeah, I mean, the show is fantastic if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet. Um, I mean, I think that 
it really reveals what made Kubrick so unique as a filmmaker. And in many ways, it's something that I feel like anybody who even still maybe goes to film school now has to do to just like learn how to make a narrative out of still images, not relying on dialogue, not relying on Joseph Campbell or whatever, like just how to communicate a story through movement, through just the image where you're putting the camera and everything. And, um, and I think that with killer's kiss, that's, What's so interesting about it, especially if you think about it as a noir film, because in many ways, in all those respects, it doesn't actually resemble that much from the noir genre. Um, It's very much not based in dialogue and very much just based in this sort of like the bodies of the leads, essentially, which is kind of why the mannequin scene, I think, is sort of fun. Uh, Just that sort of I think I think he's very hyper aware of the image making uh, not only of, you know, behind the scenes, the world of boxing, but also um, with Gloria, with uh, being a being a hostess dancer and kind of these parallel things where they're kind of putting on their their show face a little bit. Um, and and you can see them him, you know, gathering those observations in the show um, in both worlds in New York, because um, he also does a lot of he did a whole profile of a um, of a showgirl whose name I can't remember, but yeah, Rosemary, Rosemary Williams. Rosemary yeah. Williams, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and those that's are very film noir. Oh, there very, are scenes yeah. of her strolling, window shopping in Times Square mm-hmm. at night. Yeah, which she repeats in this film. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and there are several several assignments where we see showgirls like in the dressing room mm-hmm. and kind of again, like you say, behind the scenes, putting on their public face. Yeah. Very much with the mirrors there and just, you know, what that kind of voyeuristic thing of somebody watching somebody watching themselves, I think, is an interesting dynamic. Yes, one of the themes is looking, and that's also, there's a lot of people watching people, photographing people, observing others, and he exaggerates that in the the fact that they live across from the hall from each other. The other thing, there's violence in the photographs and there's sex in the Mm -hmm. photographs. But the fusion of sex and violence, which I, I hadn't seen this, I hadn't seen Keller's Kiss in a long time. Yeah. Uh, the scene where he's cutting between the two boxers, grabbing onto each other, and then we go to the dance hall section, and the owner is grabbing onto yeah. her. He's really combining sex and violence in a way that's much more explicit and fused in this film than he that he's able to do at Look. Yeah, and it also kind of builds that parallel between him losing in the ring and her kind of being taken advantage of by her boss too. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I think in addition to just the worlds being reflected in what he had experienced covering as a photojournalist. um, I mean, I think one of the things that's so interesting that kind of blends into his later career is the necessity. If he was to get the images that he got in this, which are incredible. I mean, that's, I think what the you know I don't I don't know I'm not wild about the story in this movie but <laughs> but uh, but the images are in are in, insane and and so in in a way that you don't really see I mean I, it, it was a truly independent film so it doesn't look like yeah. any kind of studio film that was coming out around then um, and so much of that was him not doing sync sound. Um, so that you could have these, you know, dollying shots going over Times Square. What do you mean by sync sound? Um, so sync sound. So um, he, uh, I think, made the decision in the middle of production that he was not going to have boom mics or do any production oh, sound. Um, 
in any of the dialogue scenes. So any, I think almost, if not all of the dialogue that you're hearing in so it is, um, yeah, is dubbed oh, in later. I see. So it's a silent film that's dubbed Yeah, in. yeah, which like gives him a lot of mobility. I see. Yeah. So, and he's probably used to that as a still photographer. Yeah, right? yeah, just like, I can do whatever I want. Like, I don't need to worry about boom shadows or whatever. Right. Um, and so I think that gives it this fluidity, but also makes it kind of inherently not reliant on dialogue in a way mm. and more like I was saying, just like in these sort of more interested in how people are in a space than necessarily what they're saying. I think there's Mm -hmm. like some story about him where he, like when he was young and would go to the movies, he would like look up and pay attention really rapidly whenever there was like silence in the film. But when, (laughs) whenever the character started talking, he would like go back to his Mm -hmm. paper again. Um, and you know, I think that some people have criticized that about him, uh, uh, just in terms of maybe not being, super interested in what we think of as like human stories, but he is in kind of a more instinctual, not like the actual text on the page way. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what your take on the short film is. I mean, well, of course, I mean, I don't, I, I'm assuming you know a bit about it, but yeah. you know, that was, that was mostly filmed with an IMO, which only yeah, had a yeah, hundred yeah. It was only a hundred feet of film. That's why yeah. the scenes are so short. Yeah, these are really short little shots. But yeah. I'm curious, like, what you see from that film and the development and or change. Oh, I mean, there are the- some like identical shots between the two of them, and I feel like I feel like almost everybody should do something like that if they're doing a feature film. Like, go, you know, maybe if it's if it's something that nobody ever sees, but just kind of get your practice finding the imagery that you want to use for a longer project. Um, I don't know. I'm a big fan of, uh, well, I had, I shouldn't say I'm a big fan. I had a phase where I watched, um, some boxing on, on HBO and stuff. And there's that show that I'm totally blanking on the name of the football one is called hard knocks, but there was the, um, do you know what I'm talking I was about? Thinking of real sports or something. like. Yeah. That. It's like, it's real, it's a real sports type thing, but they have the show where they do like a series leading up to a match and then they show the match. And I was just thinking like, that owes so much to this because it, it, you can feel the momentum and the excitement building of just like when you actually get into the ring and those, you know, limited number of seconds that you have. And I think, you know, um, he's a, he's a very instinctive sports journalist. <laughs> you also yeah. in the films see this dark, ironic, really icy oh, view yeah. of human <laughs> people and human, well, well people are human, <laughs> human nature. And I think I I think I heard when the manager is being murdered in the alley, aren't you hearing the audience in the movie theater next door laughing? Oh, I didn't catch that. No, yes, I don't if know. you, it's very subtle, but I think there's a movie. They're in a yeah, dark alley like next in to a movie theater, the dance hall, and you can movie, hear. Yeah. As he's being murdered, you can hear an audience subtly laughing. That's yeah. So it's a really ironic, and even in the mannequin scene, yeah, you know the sort of the dispassionate observers, yeah, you know that the humans are completely animated and yeah. fighting for their lives, and they're being watched by a chorus yeah. of completely passive yeah. figures, yeah, which makes their animation all the more yeah. dramatic. They're just, they're not robots yet, but they will be soon. (laughs) It's very Westworld, that's Yeah, (laughs) yes, it is. And also, Blake Edwards makes a movie in the 60s called Experiment in Terror that has a scene in a mannequin shop, a mannequin factory. And I'm wondering if he copies it. Yeah. If he has seen this. Yeah. I, 
I, I, I kind of wonder about this scene. It's like, did he just happen to get access to a mannequin yeah. warehouse or something? <laughs> yeah. like, or was it something where he w- was really like, no, like it needs to be these sort of disembodied right. figures that are watching, yeah. like that will make it, that will sell the eeriness of the yeah, fight scene. Right. Um, I think he's still pretty improvisational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, how how common was it for self-funded films at this time? Because, you know, the, 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 sh- the short film, Day of the Fight, was... He paid. He like raised three thousand yeah. dollars himself, and he sold it to RKO. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he story, even made the, a little money. The on story it. is he, his friend and his high school friend worked for the March of Time, and that guy and it was Alex Sanger who mm-hmm. actually went on to be a director. And he told him, "Oh, they're spending like thirty thousand dollars on these films." So the idea was, "I'll make it for three, and I'll sell it and make a lot of money." Yeah. And in the end, he didn't, of course. But then. It, it, the, the first couple of films are all self-funded. So I'm yeah. just curious if that was common. I was looking this up because I was curious oh. about it. Um, because I think the first film, Fear and Desire, was funded by his uncle who owned a drug sh- drugstore in L.A., maybe, yeah, I want to yeah, say. Yes, that's true. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it didn't make any money, so he didn't, he didn't fund his, his sophomore effort. Um, uh, family members can be tough too. Um, but, uh, but it's still, I think, I think he still funded 40,000. I'm, I'm trying to remember who the main funders were of it, but I was looking it up cause I was like, you know, there's not really that much of a precedent for independent film again until you get to the 70s basically and even then like it's not really what we think of as independent film like not the 90s version of it um so i think it was pretty unprecedented and then you know even more i'm sure everybody's like of course there are films that are being made but not necessarily making it to cinemas which this did um so i think that's pretty that's pretty rare for the time yeah all right should we open it up for some questions yes Which? The yes, yes, the day of the fight. Yes, and yeah. it must have been shown, you know, when when movies were double features, cartoons. It was probably shown along in between or something. in between, yeah. along with a longer program. Oh, I don't know. No, we don't know, but it actually, it's really easy to find out because they're just like in the in that film. There really are records, yeah. and because there's another. A couple bouts in the show, and we looked them up to see when they actually took yeah. place. The Willie Beltram and, um, and that, Bobby Ruffin and Bobby Ruffin, which is um, Kubrick shot. But you can you can actually look it up and yeah, find it out. Quick observation on that: just as they pull up to the arena, there's a building in the background, and on on the bricks, you know, painted on the bricks, the advertisements in those days. Says meat and meat products. Yes. Right. Well, it'll if you literally if you look it up in in these like uh, boxing logs, it'll tell you everything. Yeah. yeah. It'll tell you the date, the location, who won, yeah. how many rounds. But we just haven't done. Does that. anybody know where the mannequin factory would be? I that would no. be in Brooklyn. It was like, Brooklyn. They, they were on the, there was on the they Brooklyn were, side. Like in Dumbo for that yeah. last. Yeah. It looked scene. like yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that entire ending scene also is pretty incredible. There's also in the films a hyper sense of masculinity. Yeah. 
which you get in the later films. Yeah. I mean, he's not a, he's not a, he's not George Cougar. He's not a woman's <laughs> director. <laughs> it's funny, actually. I was just listening to uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, podcast. He just interviewed uh, with the Leon Vitali. There's the documentary oh, yes. that just came out. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, Andre Leon Talley. Film worker. Or, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. The no, yeah, okay, yeah, and, I know you're and, talking about and, that. And Alec actually asked him that question about women's roles, um, and his response was, "Well, one, most of the books that were coming out were from a male perspective, and and that um, he thought he said that in the end, a lot of the women end up being the smarter person mm-hmm. in the and the winners in the end. Yeah, um, but they never." tend to be the main character. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. But but in general, yes. It's yes. it's about men. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm not well given sure how short that, it yeah. is, it was probably the beef picture. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you'd have the A Double picture, which is what the studio, what the movie theater really it showed, wanted. Yeah, it oh, yeah. showed yeah. 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 It had even had like a because I, I looked at the release date and there was a New York specific release, so just like they do today, like and then it went wider afterwards. So yeah, I don't yeah. know how wide, but, but it would yeah. have been the B, you know, the second feature. That's why it's so short. Right. Yeah. That's a Sean question. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. The quality that. of the negatives. Uh, the the quality of the negatives. The, uh, you mean in in our ex- uh, um, uh, well, it, it ranges. I mean, uh, and sometimes sometimes it's a matter of processing because you have to remember he's a he's a magazine photographer, so he's shooting, 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 and then he just brings his film in, and the and the magazine processes it, and sometimes. It's not uh, done in the best right, way, or right. maybe in the soup that's been used all day, or you know. Um, so, so it can be uneven. Um, in some cases, in some cases, he he even at the time he liked available light. So there are several um, assignments where, like the subway assignment, is mostly available light, and there's a lot of outtakes that are blurry because, as you would expect on the subway with the speeds at that right, time. Right, right, exactly. Um, but occasionally. With the two and a quarter, he does use um, assistance with lighting. We've seen like some of the outtake pictures where there's an assistant holding a light. Yeah, you can see somebody holding a light. But yeah, um, yeah the, I, I would bl- blame the pro- poor processing on most of, on most of any problems we see. Yeah, yeah. In general, it's there. Sometimes we had to clean them up a little bit. Yeah, we got basically look got the Museum of City of New York got the photo morgue. Right. Of almost all the almost all the New York shoots, from the founding of the magazine until the early 1960s. Right. And so what they would do is, you know, the the material would come in, they would process it. The editors they'd contact sheet it. The editors would look at what they wanted. They might even clip out the negative that they wanted to run. So that's one, one thing is we don't always have the the pictures that actually are in the magazine because they would have been used on press and basically right. tossed. So oftentimes um, some of the best photographs that they picked, yeah. we don't actually have that then, image. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then afterwards they would have That's why we put magazines in the exhibition right. to for um, show what they look like. A, but after they were done, they would just um, make an envelope, put the assignment and the date and everything, throw it in the envelope and 
they sat in those envelopes for about 50 years, you know. Um, okay, I guess we're out of time. So thanks, everybody, Thank for coming. Thank you. I mean, how cool was that, right? How cool was that? <laughs> you know, we really enjoy bringing this to you. And listen, guys, if you think that's all we got in store, if that's all we got lined up for you, then just on behalf of our team, allow me to paraphrase Pacino from Scent of a Woman and say, nah, we're just getting warmed up. Because we really do have so much more to come. And we really love bringing you this show. So up front, if you have time, if you can take a moment's break from your $6 mocha choca mate latte, if you can find it in your heart, please just give us a rating and a review for our podcast Wherever you give your ratings and reviews for podcasts, listen, all kidding aside, our deepest thanks to Tracy McFarlane and Lillian Lesser from the Museum of the City of New York. They provided the content for this two-part special. And again, my deepest thanks to our show's producer, editor, and chief researcher, Stephen Rigg. Bon vivant and professional gentlemen of leisure. <laughs> Love you, dude. And everyone, don't forget, please, to check out mcny.org so you can get details about how to attend this amazing exhibition that is still on display. And through their website, you can also order Kubrick photographic prints and the new Toshin book through a different lens, Stanley Kubrick photographs. And hey, one more thing. If you get the chance, if you're so inclined, do join the greatest online community for our favorite filmmaker at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook. It's just awesome. We leave you now with an original piece of music by none other than Gerald Freed, called Murder Amongst the Mannequins, which was composed for Kubrick's classic film noir, Killer's Kiss. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Until next time, your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, signing off.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast.